If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. Sometimes the Lord throws you a little uh, curveball, and we're going to look at a different passage than I intended this morning. The points work. We won't worry about the points. We're talking today about breaking free from the cage of failure. And what I, I really want to talk about is, is, is how do you proceed when you find yourself in a place where you don't have a clue how to move forward? How do you move forward when you don't have any way of knowing what that would look like? You know, failure is one of those things that we all experience. I mean, it's one of those things that great men throughout history, great women throughout history have experienced. Failure is a common denominator among people. But what really determines our lives are not whether we fail or not. It's how we respond to failure. And Psalm 142 is an interesting psalm because it is written at a moment of deep despair and wonder from David, who feels in some ways like a failure at this moment. Now, now it says in the opening part of Psalm 142, this is a, a masculine or uh, it's a literary or musical term of David. It says, when he was in a cave, a prayer. Now, when it says that when he was in the cave, you know, that doesn't give a whole lot of depth to what's happening here, but... The most likely understanding of that, and you can write this somewhere or put it in, in your notes and go back and look at it. Well, I'll explain the situation a little bit. Is in First Samuel chapter 21 and 22. And David, who is this great man of God, finds himself in a difficult circumstance. Now, you know the stories of David, right? Tell me what you know about David. Who is David? King of Israel after Saul. He's not king yet when he writes this, but we know that's his destination. What else do you know about David? Fought Goliath, not just fought him, he killed him, right? When he was a little boy, teenager maybe. What else? What do you know about David? Saul wanted to kill him. Why? Why was Saul so threatened by David? There was a little song that everybody made up. When Saul would walk into town, they would say, there is Saul. He has killed thousands. But David has killed tens of thousands. And when you're king, that's a little disconcerting, right? David was, by all accounts, a great shepherd, a great warrior, a great musician, a great leader. That's pretty good, right? I mean, if you could put that on your resume, I mean, you think about David's resume when he's looking for the job of king. He's soothed the king's mental state with his expert playing. He has defeated the giant from the army that was the most fearful in the land. He has raised sheep most of his life, and he has now consolidated power in Israel in a way that hasn't been before or since. Other than that, he's kind of lived a normal life. But he gets to the point where his fame becomes a detriment to his life. You see, when he's walking around and people are saying, there is David. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. When you're king, your biggest concern in life is making sure you remain king. 
We have seen that play out on a world stage recently, right? Watch what happened in Egypt, right? King Mubarak is, is over there, and suddenly these people start to, to, to pour, and he starts almost making promises. Just let me say, I'll give it up in six months. Uh, you, if you'll stop protesting, I'll, by the end of next year, I'll be, I'll be out. He even announced, I don't know if you were following it closely, but there was one time when, when they leaked out that he was going to make an announcement. And at the announcement, he was going to announce he was stepping down immediately. And he got up and he said, I'm staying. He did everything he could to hold on to his power. Well, Saul wants to do everything he can to hold on to his power. So what does he know he has to do to hold on to his power? He has to kill David. But it wasn't just Saul. Other kings around heard about David, and they thought two things. If he gets to power, we're in trouble, and if I can kill him, it's going to make me look really good. And so there's a time when Saul starts chasing him, and he goes to this other king, and this other king starts to hear words about him, and he says, wait a minute, his advisors come and go, this is the David, the one that has killed the tens of thousands, the David with Goliath, the David that, that, that has killed wild, this is the David. David says, I can't have that. So he starts acting mad, crazy. And the king lets him go. Well, when the king lets him go, he flees for his life and he finds himself in a cave. And in this cave, he is there with what turns out to be about 400. And this is the way the scripture describes them. Distress, people in debt, and people who were discontent. So David goes from the palace of the king where he has been anointed by God's servant to be the next king of Israel to a place when he's in a cave with a ragtag bunch of 400 malcontents. He didn't know what to do. In fact, in the midst of that time, Saul hears about it and he goes and kills all the wives and children of those men. And those men turn on David. Now, here is a guy that had his life planned for him. I mean, you know, when he grew up, he was the youngest, the one nobody cared about. But then that day, Samuel arrived, looked through all the sons, and anointed him as king. His future changed. There was the day when he had Goliath, and he killed Goliath, and people saw him differently. His future changed. And so his career path was set. His lifetime goals and achievements were set. And he was marching along that path, seeking God the entire way. And suddenly, it gets completely derailed. And he finds himself in a cave with nobody else around. It isn't what he intended. It's not what he wanted. I don't know if you've ever been there. My guess is if you haven't been there, you will be there. And one of those moments in life when life just hasn't worked out like you thought it ought to. Like you had planned for it to work. And Psalm 142 is one of those things. And in the midst of those times, we have to remember some very specific things. Let's read Psalm 142 together. It says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell him my trouble. 
When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare from me. Look to my right and see. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Here's the thing that you have to understand. Is when you get into that situation, the only place to turn is to the Lord. The only place to turn is to the Lord. When you find yourself in that place when life hasn't worked out, when things haven't gone your way, when you need somebody stronger than yourself to carry you along, the only place to turn is to the Lord. And it says here in the first few verses that that is exactly what David did. He cries out to the Lord. There is a description in uh, 1 Samuel where he calls for someone to get him the priestly garments, where he calls for someone to ask them to come and to... to, To go to the Lord on his behalf when he seeks the Lord with all of his heart. But what I love is David comes as honestly and as openly as he can before the Lord. And what we have to realize is sometimes what we see as failure in our lives, God sees as the exact thing we need to move us forward with him. Those moments in your life when you've been rejected when you've lost something, when you've been discouraged, when it hasn't worked out, when your plan has failed, may be the exact moment God is using and calling you to a level of commitment and to a level of following Him that is different than higher than anything you've experienced before. And what God is doing in this moment is preparing David, preparing him for the day when he will be king. David is honest with God. You know, Scripture talks about not not being a complainer and and not being somebody that, that stirs discontent. But the truth is, Scripture also teaches that it's okay when you have real concerns to bring them to the Lord. Now, it's not okay to spread it all around and make everybody else upset. It is okay to bring it to the Lord and to complain directly to Him. Now, here's the reason that David went to the Lord, and the reason that we must, when it comes into our time, to follow him. The first reason is because we have to remember that God is sovereign. Somebody tell me, what does the word sovereign mean? In control. I thought I was going to have to draw a W. In control. Somebody else. Someone is sovereign. What does that mean? Does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. All-powerful. All those are kind of interrelated. The, the sovereign comes from a ruling king kind of thing, okay? comes from a kingdom kind of mentality, and that the sovereign can make rules, can make laws, is in control of what happens in his country. Well, the truth is, Scripture teaches that God is in control. And so when you get in that cave, when you get in that place, you can understand that God still is in control of everything that is happening. Everything. There is nothing that slips by his radar. There is nothing that catches him by surprise. There is nothing that he cannot act upon. He is in control of what is happening in your life. Now, that's encouraging. 
it's partially encouraging because it means that we can't mess God's ultimate plan up. Isn't that good? That's good. That's really good. Because I would mess it up if I could. There are just some things in life that, um, that we know, given the opportunity, we would mess up. I am not a handyman. Now, I can put things together if it's got instructions, but if it's got to be fixed, I need some help. All right? And so if the dishwasher goes out, there is no sense in me trying to fix the dishwasher because I'm just going to mess it up. That's just the way it is. All right? Well, God's plan is one of those things that we can't mess up, even if we make mistakes. I'm not talking about, we can't mess it up with our sin either, but I'm not talking about sins here. I'm talking about mistakes. I'm talking about misunderstandings. I'm talking about not accomplishing what we think we ought to accomplish. We can rest in the fact that God is still going to bring about everything that he intends to bring about. Now, he wants us to be a part of that. He wants us to be involved in that. But we can't mess up the grand design of the universe. Now, I know, anybody ever heard of the butterfly effect? You ever heard of that? Okay. And I know that's real popular, and scientists are talking about that. And the idea that a, a, a butterfly's wing flap in South America affects global temperatures in China. You know, is that... You know, it affects everything. And that if one little thing in your life changed, it would affect everything. Well, there is some truth to that. But that also comes to understand that that is in relation to the fact that God is still in control. He's still in control. So we have to understand God's sovereignty. Remember that it's there. This is very difficult for people that are control freaks. Anybody here want to admit to being a control freak? Anybody here want to admit to somebody around you being a control freak without pointing? All right. That's all. That's awesome. <laughs> because we are not in let me, let me. It doesn't matter how much you think you are. You are not in control. You are not. There's nothing that teaches me that better than when my kids get sick. There's nothing. We've had the stomach virus. Everybody love the stomach virus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I'm going, that's one of those things I'm going to ask God about when I get to heaven. I mean, really. It's, it's terrible. And the worst part about it is when the first child gets it, you just know it's coming through the whole house. Right? And there is nothing. I mean, you can Lysol all you want. You can Clorox wipe everything in your house. You can scrub your uh, hands with bleach. I don't advise that, all right? And sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You're not in control of that thing. And so we just have to realize real quick, we're not in control of the situation. We find ourselves in a cave. We didn't necessarily do anything to get us there, and we can't do anything to get us out on our own. So you remember God's sovereignty. Then you remember his faithfulness. The reason that David could cry out to God is because God had always been faithful to him. What he's saying is, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What he's saying with the, you are my refuge, he's saying is, God, you have always been the place where I could run and I could find safety and security and strength and it be encouraged and renewed. So, God, I am remembering your faithfulness to me. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are a God who is in control and that is faithful to me as one of your children. 
And then you remember his power. That he is able to do all things. He's able to do it all. Rescue me from those who pursue me. Listen to this. For they are too strong for me. One of the most difficult things in life is to admit that a problem is too big for me. And that it is only then, though, that you get to the place where you understand that God is the one that has to rescue you. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about um, things that aren't in the Bible, that people think are in the Bible. And last Wednesday night, we talked about uh, the phrase that about 80% of believers said they thought was in the Bible, which is God helps those who help themselves. And the point behind that and the danger behind that is saying that if, um, if I do enough, I'll get to the point where then God will help me. But that's not the way it works at all. The better understanding of that is God helps those who realize they are helpless to help themselves. Can't do anything. And so what you have to do when you fail, when you're David, and you find yourself in a cave, and you don't know where to go, what you have to do is not cower and and curl up and hide. It is to continue to pursue what God has called you to do. Verse 7 says, set me free that I may praise your name so that people can gather around me because of your goodness to me. When you fail, you have to get back up. Maddie is uh, beginning to take a few steps. She's beginning to walk a little bit. If you've ever been around a kid that's beginning to walk, it is the cutest thing imaginable. All right? And, and especially with Maddie, because she's mine, it's just absolutely adorable, all right? But when kids walk, do they get up immediately and start jogging through the house? No. What do we call them when they first begin to walk? Toddlers. Why? Because they're going to toddle, move, and then they're going to do what? Fall. Maddie's up to about five or six steps before she falls. Now, can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if Maddie got up, took two steps, and she fell, and we said, well, she's done. She's never going to walk. She might as well quit trying. She's not going to walk. She fell down. And if you fall, you're never going to walk. That's ridiculous, right? Kids are much more resilient about getting back up when they fall. But as adults, sometimes when we fail, we do those kind of things. You know what? I tried to tell one of my friends that they needed to come to church, and they said no. So I don't think I'll ask them again. And that probably means I don't have the gift of inviting people to church. So I'm not going to ask any of my friends. I tried to talk to my coworker about the Lord and ask them what was going on in their lives, and they didn't want to talk to me today about it. So that probably means they don't want to talk ever about it. You know, I, I, uh, I really stepped out in faith. Uh, believing that God would bless me when I did, and I, I lost, uh, I lost financially quite a bit. So that must mean that God doesn't want me to ever step out and do things boldly again. Well, I, I, I wanted to, to begin to open my life up to the people at church or 
to some of my friends that are going to push me spiritually. And I really wanted to, to tell them about what was happening in my life. And I, I really wanted to, to share with someone everything that I know about what God is doing and how God is leading and how he's working in and through me. And I did that with one person or with a group. And one of the people in that group, they went and told somebody something they shouldn't have told. So that means I could never do that again. I tried to to be a part of a church one time, and it just didn't. People weren't very friendly, so that means all churches are like that. And, and God God doesn't require me to be in church. We fail. We don't get back up. What David does here in this passage is he just simply cries out to the Lord. He begins to take action, and he rests in the presence of God. And so, when you find yourself in a cave or your bedroom, or in a broken relationship, or a failed business venture, or a bad test grade. The question is not, are you going to fail? It's going to be, how are you going to respond when you do? Herman Melville, who wrote the book Moby Dick, once said that nobody can claim to be great if they've never failed, because failure is the test of greatness. 